A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud in the Lord or to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. It is actually a, a joy to me to sing in Spanish. I'm so thankful for that. I get to continue to learn my Spanish, and I know it's a blessing to many of our brothers and sisters as well. So thank you for trying, because it honors many others in your efforts, and it honors God as well, who promises that one day we will be worshiping with people from every language around the throne. So just a little taste of that someday. Before we jump into Psalm 3, let's bow our heads before the king of this psalm. King Jesus, we come to you this morning seeking your justice, your judgment in our lives, your, your help, your salvation. There are many enemies all around us. There are many Doubts in our minds telling us there is no salvation for us in God. But you, God, are a good God, a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You keep your promises. You have made promises to free us from sin, from destruction, from the consequences of our rebellion. You sent your son to die for us and to give us his spirit that we may be faithful We may turn from our rebellion and live for him in obedience to his word throughout this life and into eternity. Would you bless us with this psalm toward that faithfulness, toward that trust in our God who saves in Christ. Amen. Lewis Puller was nicknamed Chesty because of his perfect posture And the fact that his chest resembled a barrel full of bricks as he walked. In his 37 years in the Marine Corps, Puller would rise through the ranks from private to general and become the most decorated Marine in American history, known for his mad desire to fight and his determination to overcome every obstacle. On one deployment during World War II, Puller's men were tasked with making an amphibious assault on a Pacific island to create, to stake out a strategic stand. Two companies hit the beach right away and almost immediately ran into an infantry much larger and more well-prepared than anything they were expected to face. The invasion force was cut off, surrounded quickly by an enemy counterattack. 
but Chesty Puller never resigned to defeat for any reason. He declared valiantly, all right, they're on our left, they're on our right. They're in front of us, they're behind us. They can't get away from us now. He bravely took decisive action, directing another company of soldiers to fire upon a weak spot in their defenses, creating enough weakness in the fortifications for his trapped soldiers to break through and escape. They reconvened, and a week later they returned much wiser for that effort and destroyed the entire enemy defense. Chesty Puller had just this innate strength and confidence confidence that made him unshakable in battle. A force to be reckoned with, even when surrounded by enemies on all sides. Sure would be great to have that kind of confidence. I know I haven't been that kind of man in my life. But I want to give myself and you confidence today that there in this psalm is an offer for much stronger resolve than this war hero. Much greater might. To remind you that there is always a rescue. There is always a savior. And his name is Yahweh. Salvation belongs to him. And when we trust him, we are called to continue the battle and stand firm in God's salvation. Stand firm in Yahweh's salvation. As the title to our psalm today, Psalm 3, tells us, the context of David's song here comes in the midst of him fleeing his son Absalom, his own son who had schemed to overtake his throne. We're going to work through each section of this psalm with an eye to that story, which can be found starting in 2 Samuel 15. If you want to turn there, just put your finger in there because we'll be going back and forth a bit. Each section of this psalm contains two verses. So verses 1 and 2, first section, we see David surrounded by enemies on every side in an apparent defeat. Verses 3 and 4 show David looking, searching, calling out for a hero. With a hopeful cry. And then David rests. He goes to sleep in verses 5 and 6 with a restful heart. But David's confidence leading to rest doesn't just let him sit back and wait for God to take care of everything. And just do nothing in the meantime. He presses forward in verses 7 to 8. Certain of a joyful victory. And if we want rescue from all of our trials... All of our problems, all of our enemies, we too must stand firm in Yahweh's salvation as David models in his own life. So let's look at Psalm 3 together and how it inspires us to stand firm, starting in verses 1 and 2 with David's apparent defeat. He says, O Lord, remember all caps is the translation of Yahweh, the name Yahweh. Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. So David begins this psalm reflecting on the impossibility of his circumstances. Everywhere he looks, every direction he goes, every person he turns to, he is surrounded by enemies. They're to his left, they're to his right, they're in front of him, they're behind him. He doesn't quite feel confident yet. Sometimes in life you find that you are stuck in such 
a trap that you feel there's no escape. Maybe you stormed the, the enemy beach and you realized it was a trap. Or you, you took your position in politics and then everything changes in a matter of a decade. How quickly things have changed and you are in the great minority. A pandemic response confronts everything you found normal. And now you wonder, what are you supposed to do with your life? For the people you thought were your trusted friends no longer feel safe to you anymore. All of us face all kinds of impossible seeming in situations at times in our lives, leaving us feel, feeling paralyzed. And then you get stuck in your own head. All these questions and doubts running through your mind. David says in verse 2 that there's voices telling him there's no salvation for him. There's no rescue for him. This statement is the great lie of every doubt we wrestle with. We think we're too sinful for God to save us. Maybe we've done, done something so terrible that we actually deserve this punishment. Or we think God doesn't hear us. Some people tell us there is no God. Some say that God doesn't care. Some even argue that God doesn't have the ability to help you. At the heart of all of these is the assumption that there is no salvation for you in God. And because God is insufficient, it attacks the character of God himself. So why is David wrestling with this? Why is he saying that all these enemies are surrounding him? Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 15 now. And here we see David's son Absalom rising against him. In the chapters leading up to this chapter, David got himself into quite a bit of trouble in 2 Samuel 11 with Bathsheba. He had judgments pronounced on him. He repented in chapter 12. And then we turn to the story of Absalom. Absalom is this... this wonderful oldest son. He always does the right thing. He's tall and he's handsome and all he wants is affirmation from his father, but he wasn't getting the respect he felt he deserved. He even executed justice on behalf of his sister Tamar, who was raped, attacking her rapist and bringing justice to the, for the family. But he still had a strained relationship with his father, David, which caused jealousy to grow in his heart. And so in chapter 15, Absalom conspires to overthrow the kingdom. Starting in verse 2, it says, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king to come talk to David about his problems, Absalom would say to him, from what city are you? And when he said, Well, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, Ah, see, you're right. Your claims are good and you are right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. The king doesn't care about your problems. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him, show him all kinds of affection. I care for you. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So over the course of four years, we find out Absalom stealing the hearts of the people of Israel by appealing to their emotions, pointing out how David wronged them. 
affirming them in their victimhood and saying, you know what? I would be so much better savior for you. I could be a better rescuer. It's this sick pattern of ungodliness. You see it in politics all the time. The other guy's the bad guy. I will be your hero. Sadly, you see it in churches as well. And it just creates a minefield of imminent destruction. But by the time David found out about it, people all over the land had become loyal to Absalom, including his most trusted advisor. At the height of the rebellion, Absalom moves into the palace, takes all of David's concubines and wives up onto the roof and sleeps with them all right in in public for everybody to see. Psalm 2 had warned about the surrounding nations and all that becoming all the enemies. But now Psalm 3 highlights that Israel itself has become the enemy. Everywhere David went for help, he found enemies. And they all told him, in some way or another, that he deserved it. There's no salvation for him. Which is kind of partially true. As all lies have just an element of truth that really sticks in your heart and makes you wonder, is the rest of this true? Remember when David, Second Samuel chapter 11, stole another man's wife, got her pregnant, killed her husband? The prophet Nathan then confronted him in Second Samuel chapter 12. If you go back just a couple chapters, verse 11, he told him, there are going to be serious consequences for your actions. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So Absalom steals his father's home flaunts his sin before all of the kingdom. And now he's going around telling everyone, basically, David doesn't deserve this kingdom. He's such a fool. He hurt so many people and brought shame on this land. He's only in this for himself. God has taken this kingdom away from him for their, for his sin. There is no forgiveness for David. Such is the hypocrisy of scheming against God's people and their anointed leaders. These are also the lies we tell ourselves, whether or not the trouble is because of our own sin or not. We get stuck in our minds wondering, is there salvation for us? Is there rescue? Probably not. No peace. I can't find rest. But then in the next section, verses 3 and 4, David confronts that lie with truth, with a hopeful cry. He says, but you, Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. David determines to confront the lie with truth. You can't confront the lie unless you know the truth. He knew it better than anyone. Though his enemies surrounded him, he kind of pulls a a chesty puller line here. They can't get away from us now. God is a shield around me. He is my defender. David knows his glory is not his own righteous ability to lead this nation. But God's righteousness. He he can't lead the nation in his own strength and fight back against his enemies in his own might. But he trusts God. 
God can lift his head from this despair. God can defend the attacks of enemies. God can forgive his great sin. David tells himself what Paul will say later in Romans 8.31. What we just sang. If God is for us, who can be against us? He fought back against the enemy's taunts with the truth of God's character. The truth of his strength. The truth of his faithfulness to his promises and his forgiveness. This truth resounded in his heart so deeply. It came out of his lips crying out to God. Answer me. Fulfill your promises. Save me. If you truly believe something, it will cause you to act consistently with it. David knows these promises that God has for him. Second Samuel 7, God promised David will be on the throne and he will pass the throne off to generation after generation after generation. Yes, he messed up greatly. There were consequences for his moral failure. But God still has a plan for David as the king. God was on his side and he was forgiven. This was his hopeful cry. The word hope doesn't mean wishful thinking. The word hope means confidence. He cried out to God to come to his rescue, confident the rescue would come. Confident God did not abandon him. Why would you ask somebody for help if you didn't think they could actually help you? So right after his enemies had told him, there's no salvation in God. He asks God for salvation. He knows there is salvation in Yahweh. Psalm 2 told us, God laughs when nations conspire for their own glory. David knows God will act on his behalf. This is a great lesson to us when we find ourselves in difficulty, in any kind of trouble. When the enemies are scheming all around us, to whom do you go for help? Is your first impulse just give in to the doubts and despair and believe God really doesn't care. He really won't answer. Or do you say you trust God, but then you bring all your complaints to your friend's circle to tell them to to whine and complain to them, but you don't bring it to the one who can actually do something about it. David refused to believe the doubts. He refused to throw himself a pity party. And he took it to God who brings salvation. And he says, God answered him. So back in the story of 2 Samuel 15, after David flees the palace to escape this coming coup, he gathers together all who are loyal to him. Some remain faithful to him, and he's going to give them direction. He's confident God will restore them. He declares over them confidence that Yahweh is going to keep his covenant promises. And he directs the priests to return the Ark of the Covenant back to the holy hill, the holy mountain, where the tabernacle sits in the capital city of Jerusalem. If God is going to come to David's rescue, he's going to do it through David honoring God as the true king of Israel, the one on his throne. So he makes this statement by putting God, his throne, back in Jerusalem. He humbles himself in prayer. As you, as you pray... It's not just, hey, talking to some invisible creator. Prayer is humbling yourself before a king, someone who has authority over you. He humbled himself before the king, exalting God to the throne, trusting God to direct the hearts of men. And he asked God in 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. 
He says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's Absalom's advisor. Turn his counselor's wisdom into foolishness so that it becomes Absalom's downfall. David knew he couldn't go in there and fight himself, so he asked God to change somebody's heart. If you want confidence that God's going to rescue you, you need to put God back on the throne of your own life. Get yourself off of the throne of your own life and ask him to rescue you, not just for your sake, but for his, that his name would be glorified. Ask him to answer your prayer in such a way that he gets to show off his kindness, his mercy, his strength. Thank him for the difficult circumstances that seem impossible because it's in those that he gets to show off and then pray that he gives you lips to praise him when he does. When you cry out to God in that way, he is delighted to answer and you can rest confident in God's salvation. This is the restful heart David experiences in verses five and six. His whole attitude changes when he exalts God. David says, I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. God hadn't even defeated David's enemies yet, but David says God answered his prayer. And the first change he experienced wasn't salvation from his external enemies, but these internal doubts, these fears and this despair. He wasn't in panic anymore. He no longer struggled with the doubts. He no longer had to go complain to his friends about how mean and unfair those other guys are. He laid his problems in God's hands and then laid his head on his pillow to go to sleep. They weren't his burdens to carry anymore. God would carry them. You know that you are really trusting God when you have all kinds of troubles in your life and you can go to bed at night and sleep well. And you stop thinking about your problems. You drift off to sleep smiling at God's kind sovereignty to run the world while you are unconscious. He can handle it without you. But here the psalm changes just a little bit more. At first David was afraid. Then he prayed and he was at rest. And then he wakes up realizing, I'm alive. Look at that. That worked out well. Why? Because God sustained him. God protects us while we're unconscious, revealing to us. It's saying more than just go to sleep. It's saying God doesn't need you. He can fight all of your battles for you. But God doesn't intend to leave us just laying there while he does all the work. Historically, this psalm has been referred to as a morning prayer psalm. Because it calls you to realize when you wake up, God has sustained the world in your absence. He woke you up to put you to work. Now you pray that his spirit would help you work. That you would trust him in all of your work to come. So he wants us to get up. David says God woke him. He woke him to get up and go take back his throne. David's no longer afraid that there's an enemy behind every bush. As he says in verse 6, God promised him the throne. It's time to go get it. Oh, how I long to be part of a group of men 
I believe we're becoming this men. A group of men who have that kind of resolve. Undistracted by all the lesser pleasures of this world. Undeterred by the threats of this world. We become a force in this culture from our homes and in this city as we rest well in God's salvation and we rise with him on the throne and we get to work. We go to work as though we are working for the king. Men, stand tall with a big chest like chesty puller, confident in God's salvation, convinced of the truth of his word, certain of his calling on your life. Put God on the throne in your heart and take command of your own home. God has work of eternal significance through you in your home. Seek his blessing for, your, for his people from your own home and trust him to topple all of your enemies. We see this continue in 2 Samuel 17. David's now wandering around trying to figure out what he should do. How is he going to lead these people who've been faithful to him to come back to where God has called them? He's reconnecting with some old friends and enemies. He's trying to make some alliances to strengthen his people and prepare them for battle, reminding them of God's truth. But in the meantime, as he's leading everybody to put Christ, put Not yet. Put Yahweh on the throne. Those faithful priests and advisors that he sent back to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, they're working against the council of Ahithophel. They were able to provide, persuade Absalom to make a rather risky decision to go pursue David right away. When it probably wasn't the best idea. This made Absalom vulnerable and ultimately led to his defeat. And David's return to the throne. God answered David's prayer a couple of chapters back to confuse the wisdom of Ahithophel. Verses 5 and 6 show us the result of a man who puts Yahweh on the throne. When he rests in God's sovereignty, God changes his circumstances while he's completely unconscious of of that. Unaware of what's going on. But he's strengthening himself for the battle at the same time. David rested in God, strengthened himself, and he rose to get to work. This is the final important step in David's joyful victory in verses 7 to 8. God works his salvation through your faithful obedience. Let's finish this psalm. He says, Arise, Yahweh, save me, O God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. David calls Yahweh now to rise. We've seen this before. But now he's not really talking about just asking God to come rescue him. He's already cried out to God for rescue. And God raised him. So David's asking God to rise with him, to enter into the battle with him. He doesn't just want God to go ahead and fight for him, but come with and fight through him. He's calling on God to execute salvation through David's own acts of faithfulness and obedience. So as he advances towards the enemy, he's trusting that God will make his enemy weak and foolish. When David lifts his sword to fight, he's trusting God to deliver the decisive blow. In 2 Samuel 18, 
Moving on through the story, we see David's answers, prayers answered regarding Absalom. David asked God to make Absalom look foolish in his defeat. Absalom succumbed to this foolish counsel. He rushed his his soldiers into battle when they weren't ready for it. And in the midst of all the chaos, Absalom, riding on his animal, gets his head caught in a tree branch. This is the stuff of like slapstick comedy. But the foolish demise of a proud son. While hanging there in that tree, David's soldiers come up to him and strike a final blow, ending Absalom's reign of foolish terror. In this way, God showed that salvation truly belongs to Yahweh. God delivered David's enemies for him. God made it very clear that the victory was his, not due to anyone's strength, anyone's scheming, anyone's wisdom. God's people experience the blessing of joyful victory when we surrender to him as the king and we advance into battle with our eyes on him resting in his promises. The psalm ends opposing those voices at the beginning of the psalm saying there's no salvation in God. David counters that with confidence that the blessings we desire for salvation can only come from God. Not just any God, but Yahweh, the relational, covenant-keeping God of Israel. Now, if you keep reading the story in Second Samuel, you'll quickly see that the end of Absalom's life is not the peace David was ultimately hoping for. David... When finding out his son died, grieved for days over the loss of his son, even though his son was a terror to him. And this caused his faithful servants, those who remained faithful to him throughout and fought against Absalom, they became so frustrated. And then there were more conflicts. David brought more curses upon the people for his, for more sin. There was debate over which of his remaining sons were to inherit the throne. And of course, after his death, we know the rest of the story. The kingdom fell into darkness. It split in two and eventually defeated by the foreign enemies. David needed far greater than far greater salvation than simply rescue from his rebellious son. The whole kingdom needed saving. The whole world needed salvation from sin. We need greater salvation than simply rescue from our day-to-day problems. We need to be saved from sin and death. Our whole country, our whole world needs to be saved from sinful, prideful rebellion against the king. And this psalm hints at that salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the king of heaven. And the heir to the throne of David. The one whom this psalm is all about. His entire world was overtaken by a rebellious humanity. He was the only truly righteous son who should inherit the throne. And yet he became for us a condemned rebellious sinner. He hung on the cross. He became sin for us. And on the cross, Jesus' enemies taunted him, telling him, why don't you cry out to God and tell him to come rescue you, to take you down from there? Yet he kept his lips shut. 
voluntarily staying on that cross. When Jesus finally expressed agony to God, God did not answer him as he did David. He stayed silent. Jesus bore the curse of God's enemies. He took the punishment for rebels upon his shoulders. And then he lay down and slept in a tomb of death. His body lifeless, overcome by the foes around him. But three days later, God woke him from his fatal slumber. God sustained him, revived him, and raised him to the throne in heaven, proving that Jesus truly is the King of Israel, the faithful son of David, and David's Lord, Yahweh himself, David's salvation. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, using words from this psalm, verse 7, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All who trust in him do not need to be afraid of any enemy any longer, even the threat of death. No matter how much the threat surrounds you, how great or small, Paul says again in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors in Christ. More than a conqueror. Because like Chesty Puller walking around with his broad shoulders and barrel-like chest, he was confident that the greatest defeat, apparent defeat, becomes an opportunity to see God pull off the most amazing, miraculous victory. Even if death overtakes us, What better opportunity for God to show off his power than to raise our dead bodies from the grave and give us eternal life in our own resurrection with Christ? We have no need to fear. But in every circumstance, we stand firm in Yahweh's salvation. So how do we stand firm? What do you do when every path around you feels like it's a trap? This week I had a conversation with a woman who felt like she was in a pretty serious trap. She uncovered fraud in her boss's business dealings, and she wondered what she should do. She thought, if I report them, I'm going to lose my job. The business is going to close down. I'm going to lose my job. All my coworkers are going to lose their job. All the people who depend on our services are going to be thrown into chaos and be frustrated and fall on difficult times themselves. But if she keeps it to herself, she becomes complicit in the fraud and the consequences might be even greater. I told her, I'm praying for her to make the right choice. But she needs to do as David did. Humble herself before God. Get right with God. And then prepare for the difficult battle ahead. Trusting in God's sovereignty and rise up and do the right thing. It will be difficult for a little while. The battle will be intense, but the victory will be much more of a blessing that way. This is how I encourage you from the psalm today. If you find yourself in any trouble, you don't know what to do. First, do like David did and cry out to God in humility. Trusting his goodness, his promises, his strength. Reminding yourself, he is the king on the throne. Get yourself off the throne of your life. That's what leads to more despair. Restore Christ to his rightful place as the king of your soul. 
and then rest in his goodness. Sleep. Remind yourself how he takes care of you even when you're unaware of it. Remember what Christ did for you even before you were born to die on a cross and rise from the dead to defeat your sins. Thank him for that. Sing praises to him for that kindness toward you. And then by his spirit, the one who will raise you from the dead, stand firm and do the right thing. Don't worry about what others are doing. Don't worry about the threats you face or the danger surrounding you. Don't fret about the possible fallout or the loss of valuable things to you. Do what God has called you to do. David knew he was called to be the king. So he stood up to go take his place on the throne, trusting God to clear the way. What has God called you to do? That you are willing to face every threat in order to be faithful to that. God has called you to be husbands and wives, children and parents, church members, brothers and sisters in Christ, neighbors, co-workers, missionaries. Don't spend so much time worrying about what other people are responsible for. Stand up and do what you have been called to do. Find help becoming the person God wants you to be for his mission. Prioritize gathering with his people for worship to put Jesus on the throne at the beginning of every week to guide you into the mission each week with Christ ahead of you. Some of these choices may cost you greatly. They may cost you friends or financial security and they may even cost you your life. But don't give in to the fear. Remind yourself of God's truth and stand firm in Yahweh's salvation in Christ. Let's pray. God, give us, give us a strong back. Help us stand tall with chests out confident, not in our own strength, but in the God who is a shield about us. Lift our heads, raise us from our slumber. And send us into the battle confident in victory that even death cannot win. Give us confidence in that spirit that raises the dead. That we can win this battle for the glory of King Jesus. Whatever difficult circumstances my brothers and sisters and friends in this room are facing, would you help them to stand firm in Yahweh's salvation? Would you help them to humble themselves and seek your truth, to know your truth, that they can speak to the lies that seek to kick them off their throne in their homes, in whatever dominion you've placed them in in their workplace. Help us, God, be on mission for Jesus in every corner of this world where all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Christ. For his glory, in his name we pray. Amen.